means this week uh, we're wrapping up the book of Genesis. And so if you have a Bible, turn with me to Genesis chapter 50. We're going to look at the very last paragraph of Genesis. And we're also going to read the first eight verses of Exodus. So it's a real special treat this morning. Think about it. It's one text, one sermon, but it spans two books of the Bible. I don't know if it's ever been done before. So uh, let's read together Genesis Uh, starting in chapter 50, verse 22. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, And Asher, all the descendants of Jacob, were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. This is the word of the Lord. I've got a question, and I'm assuming the answer will be not very many of you, but by show of hands in the room, how many of you are familiar with an English writer by the name of John Haywood? John Haywood. Zero. Yeah, maybe one. Okay, so maybe one person between two services. John Haywood. You don't know John Haywood, but I bet you know what he said. John Haywood is single-handedly responsible for some of the most famous pithy sayings in the English language. Here are several of them. Haste makes waste. Out of sight, out of mind. Make hay while the sun shines. Look before you leap. Beggars can't be choosers. A penny for your thought. Rome was not built in one day. Better late than never. The more the merrier. You can't see the forest through the trees. That really hits the nail on the head. And also, appropriately for this morning, all is well that ends well. Crazy to think that all of these expressions, which I'm sure that you use on a probably daily basis or here, uh, can be traced back to one English writer who lived in some, sometime between the 15 and 1600s, over 400 years ago. We see, even though he's not with us, his words still are. In a similar way, in our text this morning, Joseph is trying to transmit a message. He's trying to send words into the future, 400 years into the future. The time span between Joseph and Moses, the Exodus, uh, is 400 years, which is the same time between us and John Haywood. Joseph is trying to pass something along, but he's not trying to pass along pithy sayings. What is it that Joseph wants to pass down? A promise. Joseph is trying to pass down not just a promise, but the promise, the promise that we've been looking at through this entire series, the God of Promise. And so what I'd like for us to do this morning is to look back as we, as we put a bow on the series, The God of Promise, and really consider the question, what is the promise? What is the promise that the God of promise 
is making to us. It's a promise that Joseph, to his last breath, is clinging onto, that he, he has his brothers swear that they will, they will fulfill. We'll look at this promise in three ways. We'll first look at the content of the promise, the conditions of the promise, and finally, what it looks like to have confidence in the promise. So the content of the promise, the conditions of the promise, and confidence in that promise. So first, the content of the promise. One thing that I think uh, Scott and myself and Caleb have tried to emphasize throughout this series is that uh, there's one big promise that we see in in this uh, book of Genesis. One big promise God makes to Abraham, so big that it actually reaches from the Old Testament all the way into the New Testament to find its fulfillment. We talked about the covenants, if you recall, and the covenant of grace and how there's one big covenant that God is making with his people. In one sermon, we talked about how Paul in Galatians 3 says, this is the gospel. The gospel is the covenant. The gospel is the promise. These are all synonyms, gospel, covenant, promise. So what is the content of the promise? What is it about? You could sum it up like this, boil it down to three essential uh, ingredients. God's promise is about a people, a place, and a presence. God's promise is about a people, a place, and a presence. And you see all three of these actually in our text today. God's promise is about a people. So Joseph uh, makes the sons of Israel swear. This promise is, is for a particular uh, group of people. And as we read further into Exodus, we see not only the names of some of these people. In fact, in Hebrew, the name for the book of Exodus was originally Shemoth in Hebrew, which means names. So the original title for Exodus is actually not Exodus, but but names would be the translation. But uh, anyway, we see some names, and then look at verse 7. We see the people of Israel were fruitful, and they increased greatly. They multiplied. They grew exceedingly strong. The land was filled with them. Clearly, the author thinks we're dense, you know? Like, how many times do you have to tell us? The five times, people, people, people. This is God's promise coming to fruition. People are part of the promise. But it's not just people. The promise is about a place. Look at what Joseph uh, says in uh, verse 24. God will bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham. Joseph is saying God made a promise to Abraham about a place, and it's not Egypt, it's Canaan. He will take you there. The promise is about people, but it's about a place, but it's also critical uh, to remember it's about a presence. How is this going to happen? How will these people get from Egypt into the land of Canaan? Joseph says it twice. In verse 24, I'm about to die, but God will visit you. And then again in verse 25, he says, God will surely visit you. His presence will be with you. And when he does that, take, take me with you. God has always been concerned. His promise has always been about these three things, a people, a presence, and a place. And as you uh, begin to see that, once you see it, uh, you can't unsee it. The whole, the whole story of the Bible, these three ingredients are across all the pages. Think back with me to Genesis chapter 1 to 2, how God creates Adam and Eve in his image to be his people. And he tells them to multiply, to make more people, be fruitful. And he places them in the Garden of Eden. And the word Eden means pleasure. Literally, the Garden of Pleasure, just delights everywhere. Abundant joy, God's particular place for his people. And it says that God walked in the garden. They enjoyed his presence. 
Of course, we know that the story doesn't end there, but sin enters the world. And through sin, it seems like this plan of God is put in jeopardy. The people are driven away from the presence of God. The, the, they're put out of the place God has chosen. And sin starts to corrupt the very fabric of the people of God. Cain murders Abel. By the time you get to Genesis 6, it says the earth was filled with violence. It was corrupt. God has to literally wipe the slate clean and start over. But in Genesis 12, he calls Abraham. And in chapter 17, when he formalizes the covenant with Abraham, uh, God explains the promise that he's making like this. This is what he says. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations. That's people. And then he says, and I will give to you and to your offspring all the land of Canaan. That's a place. And he says, I will be their God, his presence. You could fast forward through the Bible and you'll see this everywhere. This is, this is the story of the Exodus. God's taking his people out of Egypt, leading them into the promised land. He commands them to build a tabernacle. That's what half the book of Exodus is about. In the very end of Exodus, the presence of God comes into the tabernacle. He dwells with his people. They make it into the promised land eventually. They settle in Jerusalem. They build a temple for God's presence to be with them. People, place, and presence. Of course, the, the real tragedy of the Old Testament is that uh, just like Adam, Israel breaks the covenant. They can't keep the covenant. They break the covenant. The kings of Israel and the kings of Judah rebel against God. And what does God have to do? He has to drive them again east to exile. Jerusalem is destroyed. Once again, it seems as the Old Testament wraps up, it seems that sin just can't be defeated. There's no way for God's people to dwell in the place with his presence until, of course, Christ comes. It says in John 1.14 that Jesus tabernacled among us. Jesus is called Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus told his disciples before he went to the cross, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if you skip all the way to the very end of the Bible, in Revelation 21.3, we read this. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. People, place, and presence. What is the promise that the God of promise is making to us? It is this, a people, a place, and a presence. And it's more than just Bible trivia. These three ingredients are really part of our deepest longings, deepest desires, and deepest needs as people created in God's image. We need these three things. We need a people. We all need a place. We all need the presence. I'll explain briefly each of these, a people, why we need a people. This question is so obvious. It's like, well, why don't we need people? You know, like who's going to pave roads and, you know, make clothes and cook food and create iPhones and play in the NBA? Like we need people just to enjoy life, right? Like how could we get by without people? But interestingly, there was a study in 2009 from the Physiology Review, which used uh, brain imaging technology to study our physiological needs for other people. And they wrote this, quote, in the African Bantu language, the word Ubuntu means that a person becomes a person only through other people. That's a crazy word. Can we pause there? Like one word means all of that? Ubuntu. A person becomes a person only through other people. 
That is a great word sentence there. They go on. Neuroscientists agree. Humans and their brains and minds are shaped and normally function in continuous interaction with other people. Not only the physical presence, but also the mental image of another person can affect the state of one's brain, behavior, and attitude. So what does this mean? It means literally our brains are shaped by interactions with other people. Ubuntu, a person can only become a person through other people. And the Bible has a compelling answer for why this might be. You see, because in Genesis 1.27, it says that we're created in the image of God. But God is a three-personed God. We believe that God exists as a trinity. In that way, God, Father, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God has always existed eternally as one God in three persons, same in substance, equal in power and glory. But God has always had a continuous interaction with himself. God has always had love and fellowship within the Godhead. And because we are created in the image of a God like that, of course, we need people. We not only need people, we need a place. One of my favorite places of all time is Ikea. I love Ikea. And uh, my wife and I live like 10 minutes from it in our apartment, you know. So I'll go there sometimes just to work and read, you know. I love everything about Ikea. I love the escalator I get a ride up. I love the... The trays I get to put my food on, the Swedish meatballs. I, uh, I like to go just sit in different rooms, you know, like who needs a house when you can just live in different Ikea rooms all the time, you know. The real uh, draw of Ikea, what makes it so different, is, uh, uh, is they have the, this kind of curated um, maze, you know, of, of different places where you can just look and you can see uh, different ways to design a, a space, you know, and I love it. And, you know, what is it, what is it about Ikea? What is it about designing? Why, why do we decorate? Why do we look for a perfect place? Why is it that we're, we're looking for a dream home? We're trying to renovate. We're trying to, you know, decorate, make things our own. And not even just, you know, inside places, but even exterior places. What, what is it about us that draws us to scenes of beauty all around us, especially here in Arizona. Why do we crave places? Because we were made for a place. We were made for a home. And part of the gospel is Jesus saying, I am going to make a place for you. Don't you find it ironic that the God who created the earth, when he came as a man, his occupation was a carpenter? (laughs) He's building. That's what he does. And he's building a place for us. We have a deep desire for people and place, but also presence. Not like Christmas presence, but the presence of people that we love. There's just something about presence that we all need at every stage in life. Eloise is, uh, uh, she's doing this really cute thing where, you know, if Marguerite and I are sitting on the floor, she'll grab a book and she'll bring it over to us and she'll just throw it down. And then uh, she'll turn around and she'll just like insert herself into our lap, you know. Uh, and that means we have to read to her, and I just love it. And she's also doing the thing where she just throws her arms up, you know, and, and looks at you, and you're like, oh, gosh, I've got to pick you up again. And there's no way to say no to that face, you know. And it's not like she wants to do anything. She just wants to be closer. She just wants our presence. As you grow older, that, that need for the presence of others doesn't grow, go away. If anything, it just grows when you fall in love. You just long for the presence 
of the other. It's a cruel trick as well, but when you become a parent, you, you find yourself just missing your kid, you know. Uh, I was on the men's retreat, and uh, Marguerite and Eloise FaceTimed me, and I missed them, you know. And I saw Eloise, and I just wanted to, like, throw my arms through the phone and grab her, you know. It, uh, I mean, last week, Scott even, like, you know, told the whole church we have to pray for his sons to move back here to Phoenix, you know. Uh, why? He just wants to be close to them. And I don't have experience here, but it seems like it doesn't go away with grandkids and great-grandkids, does it? The, the desire for the presence of others. One theologian said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. The greatest presence of all, all of these other presences that we crave are there because we are seeking the presence, really, of God. It's the great hole in our hearts. Psalm 1611 says this about God's presence. In God's presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Fullness of joy. You can't have more joy than fullness, right? Pleasures forevermore. You can't have a pleasure that lasts longer than forever. What is the promise of God in short? It's a people, a place, and a presence. It's everything you've ever wanted. It's what you desire most. It's what you need and it's what you crave. This is the promise. So much for the content. What about the conditions of the promise? It's a really important point to see that God's promise actually does have some conditions. You see, we're not born by default uh, with a, a right to the promise. We're born by default in need of the promise. There's a condition to it. You know, sometimes what we say about God and his love is we'll say God's love is unconditional. And I'm not trying to nitpick, you know, or split hairs. The Bible never says God's love is unconditional. That's not phrasing that's in the Bible. And normally when we say that, it's true. Because the way we're saying that is God's love is unconditional in the sense that, uh, God's love is unchanging for us, or God's love is unconditional in the sense that we didn't do anything to earn God's love, or uh, God's love can't be diminished for us. And in, in that way, it's true to say, yes, God's love is unconditional. But in a real technical sense, of course God's love comes with conditions. The Bible has always taught that in order for us to be saved, certain conditions have to be met. I mean, that's the whole point of God driving Adam and Eve out of his presence, because they failed to keep the conditions of the covenant, and until those conditions are kept, there's no way to get back in. And it's not only, you know, God's relationship that requires conditions, but if you think about it, all relationships have conditions that have to be met to exist. I mean, you can't even grab, you know, a coffee with a friend without scheduling a time and a place. There, there are conditions for everything. Imagine trying to forge a relationship with someone kind of higher than you on the the social ladder. I'm daydreaming about me trying to make a relationship with the king of England, you know. I don't know what the conditions would be to meet a king or the king of England. I'd probably have to wear a suit or like a, a fancy British thing. I don't, I don't know. They'd, you know, I, I just assume they're not going to just like roll a red carpet out for me and just let me go up and hug the king, right? There, there would be conditions of security and I'd probably have to quit being such a loser, you know, but there's going to be some sort of like, you're going to meet the king of England. You've got to do X, Y, and Z. Well, when you think about meeting someone higher up than you, 
what sort of conditions would be necessary for us to be in a relationship with God? I mean, there's got to be some sort of condition, and the Bible tells us. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. You see, the condition for us to see God is holiness. The third book in the Bible, Leviticus, is all about holiness. In fact, one person described it, interestingly, as, as like a, a user manual for a nuclear uh, power plant. The book of Leviticus is describing how the presence of a holy God can exist in the midst of a sinful people and all the protocol that the, the priests have to follow in order uh, to be safe and in relationship to God because it's a dangerous thing for a holy God to be in the presence of, of, of a sinful people. This, uh, and then Jesus, think about this, Jesus tells us in the New Testament what, what's the condition to meet with God. Jesus puts it like this. You must therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What is the condition to be in a relationship with a holy and perfect God? Perfection, holiness. And you see, that is the very problem that the Bible presents us with. The, the, big, uh, the big riddle of the Bible, if you will, is God has made this massive promise. He wants to give us a people, a place, and a presence. He wants, uh, the God of the universe wants to enter into a relationship with us and yet, we can't meet the conditions. So, I mean, it's impossible for a sinful person to be in a relationship with the Holy God. It'd be like a raindrop trying to swim over to the sun. It, it, it just can't exist. It just can't happen. Not because, uh, not ever since Adam's sin. And this is why Genesis 15 is so important. If you guys remember Genesis 15, in that chapter, God cut a covenant with Abraham. And what he did is, is they, they, he told Abraham, cut these animals in half and lay them against each other, make an aisle. And this was an ancient uh, form of an agreement called a covenant. And the reason the animals were cut in half is they represented the conditions of the covenant. If they're not kept, then the punishment, the penalty for not keeping the conditions would be death. And normally in a covenant ceremony like this, it would be the servant or the lesser authority that would walk between the pieces. And essentially they would be acknowledging, if I don't meet the conditions, then, then let the penalty of death fall upon me. But if you remember in Genesis 15, it's not Abraham who walks between the pieces, it's God. God walks through the pieces. Essentially God says, I will fulfill the conditions of the covenant. If you fail the conditions of the covenant, Abraham, then let them be upon the pain of my death. And this is the gospel. This is what happened on the cross. This is why Jesus had to be sacrificed. The gospel, you might say, is not that God gives us an unconditional love, but that God gives us an all-conditions-fulfilled love. The gospel is not that God just waves a wand and wipes away the conditions of his holiness. The gospel is that Jesus enters into our world to wear our humanity, to fulfill the conditions that we could not, and to bear the penalty that we deserve by his death. He is split in half for us. So you see, the gospel is, of course, conditioned. The promise has conditions. The good news of the gospel, the reason we call it gospel or good news, is because God has met those conditions for us. And yet, 
The way we lay hold of that promise is through faith. We have to have faith. One theologian said that faith is, is the naked hand that, that, that clings to the promise uh, offered to us. And there's a hymn that says, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And so this brings us to our third and final point, the confidence that we can have in the promise. What does it look like to have confidence in the promise or faith in the promise? And I think that this is what our text is really at, at its heart about this morning, the faith of Joseph. Now, uh, you and I have read the, the story of Joseph now, and this final paragraph might not seem to be the most uh, exciting to you. I wonder if I asked you, pick one part of the story of Joseph where you think Joseph uh, expresses the greatest amount of faith. I wonder which part you would pick. You might pick uh, the part where he forgives his brothers or the part where he has these dreams that he interprets or he stands before Pharaoh and uh, is very brave and, or he's very wise. And think of all the things that Joseph does living out his faith. But the author of Hebrews... He was creating a chapter in uh, chapter 11, we call it the Hall of Faith. He's, he's curating the greatest acts of faith from the Old Testament. And when he comes to Joseph, this is the, the part that he chooses. Here's the part he says that expresses the faith of Joseph. Joseph gets one sentence in that Hall of Faith, and here's what it says, Hebrews eleven twenty two, By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Joseph made mention of the Exodus, gave directions concerning his bones. Now, I mean, you read that and you're like, that kind of falls flat, doesn't it? In the hall of faith, it's like, you know, Noah built this awesome boat, saved the world from a flood. Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son, Moses and the Exodus, and on and on and on. David fighting things. And Joseph he made mention of the Exodus and gave directions concerning his bones. So we read this initially, you're like, well, where's the faith in that? But if you dig a little deeper, you'll see Joseph is really a model of what faith looks like for us. And he's a model for us in four ways. And I think this is the application for us, is to look at, look at Joseph and the way he's holding on to the promise of God and ask ourselves, is this how we're holding on to the promise of God? Joseph's faith is a model for us in four ways. It's emphatic it's all in. It's prepared for persecution. It's grounded in God's word. I'll repeat those just in a moment. So first, it's emphatic. Joseph has an emphatic faith, a strong faith, a vibrant faith. And we know that because of what he says in verse 25. He says this, Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, God will surely visit you. Now, that phrase, God will surely visit you, it's translating uh, in Hebrew what is called an infinitive absolute. And that's a grammatical construction that exists in the Hebrew language that doesn't exist in English. There's no real direct equivalent. An infinitive absolute uh, is, normally it's translated in English like surely, you know, like uh, God will surely visit you. Or in Genesis 2, when God's talking to Adam and Eve, he says, don't eat the fruit of the tree. In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Okay, that's an infinitive absolute. And what's happening there is in Hebrew, uh, it literally reads, in the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree, you will die, die. Okay? The closest modern equivalent would be something like the way teenage girls talk when they would say, like, we're going to go shopping, but not shopping, shopping. Or it was a date, but it wasn't like a date date. Or I like him, but I don't like like him, you know. 
and a strange twist of fate, the ancient Hebrew language and modern teenage girls are strangely similar um, in this way and this way only. But anyway, the point is that in our text that what we're seeing here is uh, Joseph is saying, God will visit, visit you. He will. His faith is emphatic. It's not just a dormant, lukewarm faith. Joseph's faith is emphatic. And we know it's emphatic also because Joseph is all in. He's committed. His faith is not only emphatic, but it's all in. Joseph is banking everything that he has on this promise. In fact, you you might say that Joseph has done everything he possibly could to ensure that this promise will happen. What I mean by that is Joseph could have been tempted to, if anyone had the ability to do this, Joseph could have been tempted to tweak the promise of God. We don't need to leave Egypt where there's all this food and it's kind of comfortable. What if we just make the promise of God happen here? Why don't we just set up shop in Egypt? Isn't Egypt just as good as Canaan? Joseph never thinks that way. In fact, from the very moment that Joseph brings his family into Egypt, he's already carefully making sure that there's no chance that the the Israelites and the Egyptians will, will be assimilated. Because in Genesis 46, Joseph says, when you come to Pharaoh, say this, our family, uh, we're shepherds. And it says in Genesis 46, every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. See, Joseph has built in a safeguard to prevent his people from assimilating and getting too cozy in Egypt. And as the great uh, testament of his faith and his commitment, Joseph is committed literally in his bones. He says, when you go 400 years from now, 400 years from now, pass this down, but make sure you take me with you. I don't want my bones left behind. He's emphatic. His faith is all in. It's also prepared for persecution. Joseph says, God will visit you. And that implies God's going to come help you. God's going to visit you. Well, the implication there is hard times are coming. And that's in fact what God had told Abraham hundreds of years earlier. In Genesis 15, During that very covenant ceremony, God said to Abraham, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs and will be slaves there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Joseph is telling his his brothers to have a faith that can persevere through four centuries of suffering. The promise will still be good, he says. God will surely visit you. His faith is emphatic. It's all in. It's prepared for persecution. And finally, his faith is grounded in God's word. Joseph's faith is grounded in God's word. How did Joseph come to have this sort of faith in the promise of God? The interesting thing to me about Joseph is, uh, in, in some sense, he's separated from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Bible often says the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But I don't think it anywhere says the God of Joseph. It doesn't say the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, and Joseph, it, it stops, right? And it's kind of weird because Joseph is clearly like the best of all of them. So why does it do that? Well, one thing that's interesting is that God appears to Abraham and God appears to Isaac and God appears to Jacob. All of them get an appearance of God. And each time God appears, he says, I am the God of your fathers and I will be with you. But God never did that for Joseph. How did Joseph come to place his faith in this promise? His dad told him about it. He heard the word of God. For him, he didn't have a Bible. All they had was an oral word of promise. And Joseph banked his life on it. 
In that way, Joseph is a model for our faith. And so as we wrap up this series on the God of promise, my question for you this morning is, is the, the promise of God your promise? Not only that, are you holding on to this promise the way that Joseph is? Emphatically, all in, prepared for persecution, grounded in God's word. I'm, I'm glad that Craig reminded us that it's Ascension Sunday. And I think it's interesting to keep reading the text until verse 8 where it says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And this is a theme that you see throughout the Bible and even in church history and all the way up to the present day. There always arises another king. There's always a new king that doesn't know Joseph, that doesn't know God, that doesn't believe the promise, that doesn't hold on to it. Kings will always rise, but none will rise higher than Jesus. Because Jesus has ascended, we can trust that the promise is good. And that is why in 2 Corinthians, Paul says this, Jesus Christ is the Son of God that we proclaim to you because all the promises of God find their yes in him. Will you pray with me? We thank you, God, that all the promises that we see in Scripture find their yes in you. That is why we utter through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. God, I pray that uh, we would be drawn into worship of you this morning as we ponder the fact that you're the God who not only makes a great promise, but keeps a great promise, a promise good for Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, but also good for us. I pray this morning that uh, you would help us. If we have never trusted you for, for salvation, there's someone here that they could actually lay hold of this promise for themselves. But even those of us who have, by faith, God, would you strengthen us to have a faith like Joseph? emphatic, all in, grounded in your word, prepared, God, even for persecution. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.